Okay, could we please turn to Romans chapter 3, which will be firing an arrow into Romans 6 from there. You'll notice on the information table, we have a roughly, I emphasize the word roughly edited, version, written version of Sunday morning's message. Remembrance, recapitulation, and regeneration. Important mostly from the standpoint of the definition for regeneration, which we haven't really done much on lately. Romans chapter 3, verse 8, first of all, then we're going to use that to press into the center of Romans in our usual pincer strategy, which we may be innovating a little bit with in the next few messages, 6 into Romans 6. I don't know what to do with myself when there's no announcements. Oh, we we do have both Wednesday and Thursday this week, and then we're going to go into an experiment to try every other week for every other Thursday. So that'll begin next week with no Thursday service. And then it'll be staggering every other week, both then one. Okay. A few moments to rebound from your social fellowship before church. Those things you said, they were terrible. Now, this, prepare yourself in the usual way for the intake of the word. Quiet receptivity. Father, I thank you for who you are, for who your son is, for who your spirit is. I thank you for this group of believers who have continued together with me in advancing to the high ground of the spiritual livingness that is in Christ Jesus. We pray that tonight's message will be utilized in a way that advances your intention in our lives. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. I want to make a quote from a man who has highly influenced me recently by one article alone. His name is Paul W. Meyer, M-E-Y-E-R. You've heard me refer to him a couple times before. The article is called The Worm at the Core of the Apple, Exegetical Reflections on Romans 7. And here's a quote that sort of jumped out at me from Paul W. Meyer and that article. He said, justification is a change of controlling allegiance. And I want to repeat that because that's very dense and powerful theological statement. Justification is a change of controlling allegiance. Semicolon. It sets one free from sin only insofar as it makes one an obedient slave of God. 
Now, another profitable move in the interpretation of Romans, and that's our goal. Our goal, our task, let's say, is interpretation. Our goal is understanding. Our goal is to understand and know him whose mercy is expressed toward all. Another profitable move in the interpretation of Romans is to press Romans 3.8 into the center of the epistle where Paul effectively demolishes an attack on his gospel. Paul's gospel, Romans 2.16, Romans 16.26, is the gospel of God that's all about his son. Romans 1, 1 through 4, Romans 1, 16 to 17. There's nothing to be ashamed about in that gospel. Now, before the hamartiological catena, which we've worked on in midweek services recently, or midweek lessons, in Romans 3, 10 to 18, Paul in Romans 3, 8 indicates that he and others... who preach the gospel of God's unconditional and universal grace. Are, quote, slanderously reported to be saying that we should do evil things so that good may come. That's the charge in Romans 3.8a. The teacher chimes in in B and tries to turn that into a judgment thing, but... Paul is charged with, they are slanderously reported, Paul and his associates, for Paul has a mission to the Gentiles and the so-called pagans or heathen, which is a law-free mission, a circumcision-free mission. There are other Christian Jewish believers sponsored by certain false brothers in Jerusalem who are bringing a law gospel to those Gentiles. So in Romans 3.8, and any preacher of grace, even if we don't get the whole thing right, we've felt the sting of this one. It's a license to sin is how they put it in our time. This defaming accusation is repeated in our own times by the unlearned and unstable allegation that grace is a license to sin. That's a charge which on its face is uninformed, defamatory, and blasphemous, that charge itself. To say grace, which is God's power, constitutes a license handing a license to people to sin is uninformed and thank God for them that it is uninformed. It's a result of instability and really a lack of moral integrity. However, this criticism is often made against people who have indeed misrepresented the gospel. And here's where it may sting a little bit. Preachers like myself, considering our history. The gospel can be misrepresented in this feature. 
The gospel of God about his son can be misrepresented by presenting justification as merely a judicial imputation, a forensic imputation of righteousness, which has no rectifying power, no power to rectify what's wrong. Now, it's sensible. A lot of things were sensible to me. Dispensationalism was sensible to me until I discovered the Israel of God and the identity of the Israel of God as the embodiment of the new creation. Imputation, justification as an imputation made sense to me only because we could bring on board sanctification as a separate doctrine, and it isn't, in fact. That's pulling asunder what God has joined together. We pulled sanctification in it to defend ourselves against the charge that grace was a license to sin or that our gospel was a license to sin. So I myself saw justification in a purely forensic sense, a judicial sense that upon believing God imputes or writes to our account righteousness or declares us to be righteous and that's about it. It's a judicial forensic imputation. And so to remedy the accusation of this being a license to sin, I did what many others in that camp do, did and still do. And that is to bring artificially on board a second doctrine, that of sanctification. I don't think we were deceitful in this. We thought we were doing right. There's no... That's the only thing that saves me lots of times is when I was in error or had something that I didn't quite express correctly about the gospel. I can say with Paul, I did it in ignorance. So God had mercy on me. And we still had it. It was still Christ and him crucified. Thank God from day one to this day. And God is very, he's pleased with that, with his son's finished work. So we had to bring sanctification on board as a second thing because justification had no influence whatsoever on the sinner or the sinfulness of the sinner. So I now agree with the statement made by Paul W. Meyer that justification is in fact a change of controlling allegiance. And this is going to become more and more in focus when we realize the royal theme of Romans, that Jesus is the messianic king, that Paul is the herald of the king, and that he's heralding a message of Christ's kingship, the kingdom of God, which brings us all under a different controlling allegiance than we had when we were under sin or under the law as hijacked by sin. That's Romans 7. So because of this, rectification is a better term for the verb dikaio in the Greek. Dikaio. Justification has the sense of a legal imputation. Rectification has the sense of a truly being set right. Being made right. And therefore, that 
term justification isn't just a punctiliar thing that happens once. It's something that goes on throughout the course of our life. And God only, not only rectifies human beings, but all creation. All that's gone wrong, he rectifies by an act of God. It's always an act of God. That's why I think rectification is a much better term than justification. I still use the term justification because that's the very term that's used and bantered about in this ongoing fierce debate among theologians. And so rectification brings a person into a state of rectitude or what I call God-approved livingness. God-approved livingness. It's a word that Moltmann used, living, N-E-S-S, on top of living. In the power of the Spirit. If left alone, listen carefully to this. I'm trying, this is, we're walking on landmine territory here. Because I don't, I could blow up any second right in front of you, so. I'm leading you through it. So I'm going first. I'm leading from the front on this. So if I step on a landmine, only I'll blow up. Okay. So. If left alone, the doctrine of a merely judicial justification holds up no shield against sinfulness. It really can't fully escape the charge or the accusation of being a license to sin. God's grace isn't a license to sin, but a misinterpretation of the gospel that makes justification merely and only a judicial imputation does nothing to the person at all except changes their legal status. That's not what justification is. It's more than that. So if it's perceived as a merely judicial justification, it holds up no shield against believers' sinfulness. It does not really fully escape the charge of being a license to sin because the reasoning in that doctrine, whether said by the preacher or not, by the believer, it's considered to be this. Well, it is inevitable that we're going to sin after justification. But we can just confess the sin each and every time we sin. That's a motif that we think we learn from John, but did John really teach that motif? There's many times when we consider a certain motif of Scripture to belong to John or to Peter or to Paul or to Luke or to Jesus, but it doesn't belong to them at all. Like Romans, we're finding out in Romans 1, 1 through 3.20, especially 1.18 to 3.20, a lot of the motifs there, including if you're good, you get rewarded with eternal life. That's not Paul, obviously. That's an appalling deviation from Paul. But that's for another time. I'm going to hold that. I got that thought on a back burner. It's simmering. So such a viewpoint puts a saint on a trampoline rather than on the path of the just which shines brighter and brighter unto a perfect day. The doctrine of a justification 
It's merely a judicial imputation that says, just confess your sins. You're inevitably going to continue sinning. So just confess it every time you do sin. And that puts a believer on a trampoline, not on a path. Proverbs 4.18 calls it the path of the just. Shines brighter and brighter unto a perfect day. 4.18. 4.17 talks about just the license to sin, where it's truly a license to sin, makes a mockery of bread and wine, makes a mockery of the Eucharist. Read that in Proverbs 14, 4, 17. Proverbs 4, 17 and 18. That's your assignment. Not really. I don't give homework. So, such a viewpoint ultimately makes a mockery of the Eucharist, for example, as Proverbs 4.17 poetically indicates. The definition of justification as a merely judicial imputation is not a part of Paul's gospel. Paul's gospel, again, is Romans 1, 16 to 17, 2, 16, 16, 26, etc. Consequently, it is not a part of the gospel of God about his son. Romans 1, 1 to 4. The doctrine of justification as rectification is more like it. Rectification entails a change of controlling allegiance. Paul is talking about bringing about the, what? Obedience of faith in all the nations. The obedience of faith in all the nations. How does, that, how does he bring that about? It's the Holy Spirit brings that about through the power of the gospel. Through effecting a salvific change in the listener. Brings him into allegiance to a new king. Allegiance. You're not justified by coming into that new allegiance. That new allegiance is part of your justification. Paul Meyer's definition of justification then is a change of controlling allegiance. Is vindicated, in my view, in Romans the Epistle. Paul the Apostle presents the same basic definition of justification in order to demolish the slanderous accusation made against him and his co-workers who are engaged in a circumcision-free mission to the Gentiles and who proclaim a gospel of unconditional grace rooted in the redemption that is in Christ Jesus in Romans 3.24 and a gospel of universal mercy in Romans 11.32. Let us see, then, how this definition is justified. Let's see if his justification definition is justified by pressing Romans 3.8 into Romans 6, starting at verse 1. Remember Romans 3.8. We are slanderously gossiped about as... Proclaiming, go out and do evil that good may come. Look at Romans 6, 1. 
What will we conclude then, Paul says, after Romans 5.21, of course, shall we persist in? Persistence here is really means to persevere in, and so it has the sense of shall we continue to persevere in allegiance to sin? We should capitalize sin, and I agree with the apocalyptic theologians, and I am one myself, an apocalyptic I don't want to say theologian, that's a little uppity, but a believer in apocalypse. Sin, capital, because Paul defines sin not so much as a moral aberration, as a cosmic power from which we must be delivered. It does not say that it's just a power that enslaves us, but it does that, but it doesn't only enslave us, we are complicit with that power. There's nothing we can really do about it. And justification as a judicial imputation doesn't change that one single bit. We're left with a legal standing and helplessness under sin again. Shall we persist in or persevere in allegiance to sin so that grace will abound? Remember now the arrow, and I'm using the arrow, kind of an arrow technology from, let's go from 3.8, then to 5.21. Paul holds thoughts together, 5.20. The law came in as a side issue so that sin would abound. And where sin abounded, grace superabounded much, much more. So do you take that reasoning, Paul said? Do you take that reasoning And make the unreasonable assumption that we should then persist in sin so that grace may abound? Here the immediate context is Romans 5.20 to 21, really, where Paul concludes one of his most expansive passages, one of his passages that includes the widest horizon, the widest perspective of God's redeeming work. That's 5.12 to 21 in which he delineates not only an unconditional justification, but also a universal or pan-human one that's grounded in the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. Now, please note, the faithfulness of Jesus Christ, Romans 17, 3.22, 5.1, 3.30, there's a lot of other places, is a.k.a. This is one of the most important doctrines that we have come upon so far, a.k.a. also known as, equivalent to, the faithfulness of Jesus Christ is a.k.a. the death of Jesus Christ, Romans 4.25, Romans 5.6, Romans 5.8, Romans 5.10, the faithfulness of Jesus Christ a.k.a. his justifying or rectifying death, is a.k.a. the righteous act of the second Adam, the single righteous act, which takes in all the elements of the Christ event, incarnation and the days of his flesh, passion, suffering, and crucifixion, death, burial, resurrection, ascension, exaltation, all this being the Christ event. 
all of this taking in the obedience. The faithfulness of Christ that rectifies is a.k.a. the death that rectifies, that is a.k.a. the righteous act, that is a.k.a. That's Romans 5.18 if you're interested. A.k.a. also known as the obedience of Christ, Romans 5.19. A.k.a. the blood of Jesus Christ, Romans 5.9. Therefore being justified by his blood, Rectified and set right by his blood. They all mean the same thing. His faithfulness, his death, his righteous act, his obedience, which is to the extent of death, as Philippians 2.8 brings it hymnally to us, and the blood of Jesus Christ. But going farther back, this is a response to the defamatory accusation against the gospel that's proclaimed by Paul and his associates, then and now, even now, and how. And one of my goals in life is to be considered an associate of Paul in that I'm preaching Paul's gospel. You can expect the same charges leveled against you then, can't you? And there is that charge then and now, that it encouraged the performance of evil with the irrational expectation that by it, good may come. So you're dealing with it all over again. You deal with unconditional grace, people say it's a license to sin. You deal with universal grace, people say it's a license to sin. There's even the temptation brought by the tempter to say, why live? unto God anymore (laughs) why indeed all the more reason to because the old age is on the way out the old cosmos is on the way out we died to the old world we suffered the loss of the old world when we were immersed into Christ and therefore to me it's a matter of living or dying a matter of life or death to learn how to live in Christ and learn how to participate in his faithfulness and what it means to be receptive to his mercy. Here Paul very adeptly equates the good of Romans 3.8. Shall we do evil that good may come? He equates the good with grace in Romans 6.1. So someone would say to you, what is the good? You'd say grace. He adeptly equates the good of Romans 3.8 with grace in Romans 6.1. He also equates doing evil in Romans 3.8 with persisting in allegiance to sin as a controlling power in Romans 6.1. So here's what the upshot of this. Good does not come about by the doing of evil. Nor does grace abound in your life or mine or the lives of our loved ones around us. Nor does grace abound by persisting in allegiance to sin, which is an elemental cosmic power. 
That definition is more important than you even imagine, more important than you can know right now. And we'll fan it out by God's grace. So just because God's grace abounded much more when sin abounded through the law, listen carefully to this, just because God's grace abounded much more when sin abounded when law came in, Romans 5.20, does not mean that those who are in Christ should continue in sin with the less than sane idea that by doing so, grace will abound in our lives. That doesn't equate. It doesn't compute. It doesn't equate to reality. The superabounding of grace brings about rectification in its personal objects. And rectification is a change of controlling allegiance. No person can say Jesus is Lord unless by the Spirit of God. But if the Spirit of God is controlling you, it's because you call Jesus Lord because you are under a new controlling allegiance. In Romans, make that 1 Corinthians 12.3. Now, this is important. Another, I'll, I'll introduce it earlier than I thought. I recently read a book by David Trobisch, who is a German scholar who taught, he studied thousands of letter collections, thousands of letters, ancient letters around the time of Paul, before Paul, after Paul. And he determined through much study that Paul himself was responsible for collecting his own epistles and publishing them. And he believed that that was part of Paul saying, I live by the gospel. Those that preach the gospel should live by the gospel that they preach. He, was, he collected. Now, he's proven to my satisfaction that Paul collected First and Second Corinthians. I don't know if I agree with Trobish that Second Corinthians is made up of seven letters. But you can see there are several times where it looks like another letter and another letter. And Paul combined them himself. 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, he has proven without a shadow of a doubt to me, without a reasonable doubt to me, that 1 and 2 Corinthians were written just before Romans, not after. The reason that we have them in the New Testament the way we do, Romans first, is because in the old collections of letters, they always put the longest one first because of the way that the pages were arranged and the way that the characters were arranged in order to have a, a symmetry. So Romans is first in the New Testament, not because it was written first, but because in the collections, the longest appeared first, usually. Romans being the longest in terms of characters. First Corinthians, second Corinthians are also of the longest. Galatians, which was written before both of them, or all three of them, is then appears next, etc. Now, some of the early collections believe that Paul also wrote Hebrews, which is an interesting take because I've always assumed that he didn't. I assumed he did at first, then assumed he didn't. Then I, Now I'm seeing that the original collection at 14, if Paul collected it, then he wrote it. If he, didn't, if he wasn't responsible for that collection, he didn't. Other people think he wrote it anonymously for a reason because it was addressed purely to Jewish Christians, and he was the apostle to the Gentiles. There's some sense made to this that I haven't seen before, but the point is Paul was responsible for collecting. That's why some names are omitted, 
like he would say, Titus and the brother. Now, that brother might have defected since then. Paul didn't want to mention his name or his name wouldn't mean anything. So it, it's clear that Paul collected at least Romans, First and Second Corinthians and Galatians and edited them himself. Now, if this is the case, then some people early on had Paul's published epistles didn't only have Romans, but also had First and Second Corinthians, so they had a prelude to go by. They had some things that Paul already said to go by in Romans. My theory is that if Paul collected all of his letters and edited them, that it might have been Paul himself that wrote the final postscript, as it's called, in Romans sixteen twenty-five to 27. If that's the case... Paul rounds up all of his epistles under the title of the proclamation of Jesus Christ according to the apocalypse of a mystery, which would then determine that all of Paul's epistles taken together, all of his letters taken together, form a single apocalypse, a a shocking revelation of Jesus Christ in his universally saving significance. If that were the case, and I can't say that it is, But even if it's probably the case or has a high degree of probability, that may be one of the most important discoveries that I've made in 40 years, which isn't saying much because we made a few of them. But that's just, I introduced that note in the symphony. Now I back off. So the superabounding of grace brings about rectification in its personal objects. And rectification is a change of controlling allegiance. This change is not affected by the volition of the saint, the will, the intention of the saint, but by the spirit of grace, as he's called in Hebrews 10.29. And he makes us obedient slaves to God. And that, of course, is just a terminology for effect. This is one reason why Paul wrote to the Corinthian saints. Now remember, it's clear that Paul at least collected Romans 1st and 2nd Corinthians and edited them and for publication in a wide audience. I think he did it with all of them, but that's for another time. This uh, Trobish believes that he did so and sent them to Ephesus that he collected Romans, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, and sent them to Ephesus. So he believes Romans 16 is a cover letter written to introduce the whole collection to his friends in Ephesus. I don't know. Can't say. He's done his homework on that. I haven't. But I like what other people are doing. I'm, I, this is a collaboration here. It's not a one-man show when we discover these things. It's collaboration. Now, when Paul wrote to the Corinthian saints in 1 Corinthians 6, 9 to 11, he wrote to a group of people who were once controlled by sin with obvious appalling results. He lists them in 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11. Once you were this, once you were this, once you were the thieves and idolaters and whoremongers, and a whole bunch of other things. Once you were this, once you were this. But he says, interestingly, more than interestingly, but now you are washed, 
That's the bath of regeneration that we talked about Sunday that will be in your notes if you want them, if you're interested. And now, he says, sanctified. Now you're sanctified. And that means set apart to God. Not just positionally, really. And and then he uses this word, and justified, which is better translated rectified. Now you are justified or rectified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. You are justified by the Spirit of our God. That means that justification takes on the quality of sanctification, practical sanctification, rectification, because the Holy Spirit's involved. Again, this is 1 Corinthians 6, 9 to 11, emphasis on 11. This justification is a rectification, not just a judicial imputation. And so, the Spirit will be brought explicitly into the situation in Romans 8, 1 and following. It is not possible to speak of Jesus as Lord without at the same time of our allegiance to him. Speaking of our allegiance to him. No one calls Jesus Lord unless the Spirit has brought that person into an allegiance, a controlling allegiance to him. So it's not possible to speak of Jesus as Lord without speaking at the same time of our allegiance to him, which is allegiance brought about not by the power of our pledge. I pledge my allegiance to you, Lord. Forget about it. It is not by the power of a pledge made by man, but by the power of the Spirit of our God, the Spirit of the crucified, risen, and glorified Christ. On top of this, Paul also shows in Romans 7, this is getting into the raw machinery, the raw guts of Romans here, that sinfulness is actually unwillingly produced in and performed by anyone who attempts to secure rectitude through observance of the law. Paul's saying, he bats it right back to the teacher's face. You're slanderously reporting my gospel to be saying, go out and do evil that good may come, but I'm telling you that your nomistic gospel, which forces people into trying to secure rectitude or improved way of living by the observance of the law causes them to be unwillingly the slaves of sin all the more because sin has hijacked God's just, pure, and holy law and corrupted its purpose. So Paul effectively bats the accusation against Paul and his apostolic associates right back into the face of the teacher and his associate preachers of a nomistic gospel or a salvation through the observance of the works of the law. But now let's persist. 
not in allegiance to sin, but in the exegesis of Romans 6. Certain, verse 2, certainly not. Meganoito, in the, I wouldn't want to be accused of being a vulgarian, so I won't say the force of this meganoito, which means hell no. So I won't say that. I wouldn't dare say hell no. Hell no, I wouldn't say hell no. But that's what this meganoito is, the strongest possible negation. Certainly not. Let's say it that way. Let's be polite. How can those who died to sin, sin as a controlling power, how can those who died to sin live any longer in it? Let's say I died in my hometown, North Bennington, Vermont. I died there. If I die in North Bennington, Vermont, I can't any longer live in North Bennington, Vermont. I'm in the obituary. Does that make sense? I think it makes sense. I mean, be reasonable. Here the apostle reaches back to Romans 3.20. Remember, that's why I introduced it earlier in our messages, not tonight. He alluded to Psalm 143.2, which says, and Paul didn't say it, but he said it by not saying it. He alludes to the verse which says, No one living can be justified in God's sight. No one living can be justified in God's sight. And someone will say, yes, you can, because the reformers taught us that while we're alive, we can enact belief. We can believe and still be alive and be just. No, no, you can't. I'm sorry, you cannot. No, I'm not sorry. You just cannot. No one alive can be justified in Yahweh's sight. Psalm 143.2, Septuagint stronger, the Greek translation. So what, did we, what happened? We died with Jesus, who died to sin. He died to sin. We're going to find that out in Romans 6, 9 to 10. Once and for all. And he now lives forever to God. But we, when he died, we all died. That means, as 2 Corinthians 5.14 is a prelude to Romans, when he died, we all died. When he died to sin once and for all, we died to sin with him. To live unto God. Rectification becomes that change of controlling allegiance. So we died with Jesus, who died once for all to sin for us, and indeed as us, as us, he died to sin. Romans 6, 9, and 10. The arrow keeps continuing through 6, 1, through 6, 9, and 10. It's like Jonathan, the far striker. He could shoot some arrows like you wouldn't believe. If we died to the controlling power of sin, how can we persevere in the same way as before under the control of and in loyal complicity with sin. How can it happen? Indeed, Paul will go on in this chapter to show that God's act of rectification, let's just put it, if, you, if you're confused, just justification slash 
rectification. Justification slash rectification. Paul goes on later in this chapter to show that God's act of justification, rectification, quote, sets one free from sin, as Meyer said, only insofar as it makes one an obedient slave of God. This goes into the realm of addiction. When a person is cured of addiction, the addiction is nothing anymore because they're a slave to righteousness now. You can't make someone work against the power of addiction, which is demonically strong and strong as a cosmic power, until you make them a slave of righteousness. Only God can do that. I'm not against programs that do it and that try to get people on the right track. Not at all. But I'm saying that when a person is cured of a habit or an addiction that they could no way be cured of, it's because God rectified them. And when God rectifies you, it's like you can flick that enemy away with your finger. It's not, it doesn't mean, it's not as a big looming thing anymore. God has reduced it. Like he reduced Goliath from a screaming, loud-mouthed, intimidating giant to a dead man with no head. So what people do when they go back under legalism is Paul said, why are you now being enslaved to the very weak and bankrupt now? They've been weakened and bankrupted. The weak and bankrupt elements of the cosmos, you're putting yourself back under that? That's, now that is crazy. So Paul will go on to show that justification also sets one free from sin only insofar as it makes one obedient as a slave of God. If we follow the spirit-directed, God-breathed reasoning of Romans 6, let's just say it this way. If someone who makes the charge against the gospel can now follow the spirit-directed, God-breathed reasoning of Romans 6, even as it fans out both ways through Romans the epistle. And they can still say that grace, the grace that he's talking about here, hands people a license to sin, like James Bond was given a license to kill, then there truly is something psychologically and morally deficient in the accuser. We might even say that such an accuser is uh, doing evil. So, this is what I say. We died to sin to live to God. We died to sin to live to God. We did not die to sin to continue to live in sin. Now, the apostle gets all staros-eyed now. He's cross-eyed. I don't mean like cross-eyed lion, Clarence the cross-eyed lion. I mean cross-perceiving. He gets staros-eyed, not starry-eyed. He always is. Someone will say, when does Paul get to the heart of the matter? And I'll say this, Paul's always at the heart of the matter. He's never communicating anything that's dissociated from Jesus Christ and him crucified, even when he seems to go way out here to make a point and come way back in again. He's always at the heart of the matter. 
he gets all starry-eyed. No, staros, the cross, S-T-A-U-R-O-S, eyed. Romans 6, are you not aware? In the context, this is so much more potent than just reading it. Are you not aware that as many as were immersed into Christ, that's the word baptizo, but immersed is more powerful, were immersed into his death, his death, his death, his justifying, rectifying death. Now, however you feel about water baptism, let me take another aside here. There's no landmines over Yeah, we're going to another landmine area. I won't take you there. I'm going myself. Watch me walk on the landmine area. If I blow up, just I blow up. However you feel about water baptism, I do not think that Paul is arguing here that the ritual of water baptism has the effective force by which we are entered into Christ. I'm not against water baptism. I'm not against you doing it. Do it. Christ didn't send me to baptize, but somebody might feel like they're sent to baptize. Dave, you want to baptize people? Okay. You don't? Okay. I baptized maybe a couple hundred people in my day, but Paul said something else here. Now listen. The effective force that immerses us into Christ is none other than the Spirit of God. Now, here's where I must sound a new note about the collection of Paul's letters again. I sounded it. I'll sound it again. First and second Corinthians came first. I can show that at a later date, the proof where you say, oh, of course, that's true. Consequently, as a prelude to Romans, the epistle, we have first Corinthians 117, where Paul says, Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. Why? Because preaching the gospel is the effective force used by the Holy Spirit to immerse people into Christ. Now, I will show you that there is an importance of the ritual, which is why we don't have a baptismal font here, but if you want to be baptized, then ask a fellow believer to water baptize. It's it's the season for it. Just don't go to a polluted river. Swimming pool's okay, even if it's chlorinated. But 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians came first. 1 Corinthians 1.17. The readers of Romans have at their disposal, disposal the notion that immersion into Christ is the act of God by the Spirit, not the act of Paul or anyone else in water baptism. Paul said, Were you baptized in the name of Paul, or was Paul crucified for you? Think about that. So in 1 Corinthians 1.17, Paul introduced his most eloquent exposition on the word of the cross, also known as the logic of the cross, the logos tustaru, also known as what we could call the theology of the cross, 
in 118 and following. Paul introduced his most eloquent exposition on the word of the cross with the declaration that Christ had not sent him to water baptize anyone else because he had done it a few times already. Crispus and Gaius, for example. That gospel then that he was sent to proclaim is in essence what Paul called the word or the message of the cross, which is pars pro toto for the saving Christ event. The cross is a part, a part of the whole for the whole. It's part of the saving event, which is also called the gospel is also called in Romans 16:25 the proclamation of Jesus Christ according to the apocalypse of the mystery that mystery being the saving recapitulation of all humans and all beings in Christ through the incarnation the suffering and death the burial and resurrection the ascension and enthronement of Jesus God's Messiah so the immersion which is depicted by the ritual of water baptism, I said the immersion that is depicted, illustrated, pictured, practiced as a dramatic ritual in water baptism, merely pictures the immersion or the baptism of the believer into the death of Christ. Does dunking you in water immerse you into the death of Christ? No. The Spirit immersed you into the death of Christ and in through the death in Christ into the life of Christ. The Spirit therefore justified you, not while you were alive, but as a dead person made alive in Christ. So let's look really briefly and we'll close to 1 Corinthians 12, 12 to 13, a monumental, wonderful verse or two verses. And so baptism that Paul is speaking of here in Romans 6, 3 is not an act accomplished or an act even made effective. And that's important. You're not saved by your faith, even if it's made effective by the Holy Spirit. That's not what saves you. You're saved by the faithfulness, also known as the death, also known as the obedience to the extent of death, also known as the blood of Christ. That's what rectified you. And God awakens you to faith in Jesus Christ's faithfulness as that which justified you. I haven't yet made that point as strong as I want to yet, believe it or not. So baptism is not an act accomplished or even made effective by water baptism. Paul said it this way. You want to say you were baptized by Paul? As if that got you saved, you might as well say Paul was crucified for you then. First Corinthians 12, 12, 13, for just as the human body is one entity consisting of many parts, all the many parts being nevertheless one body, so also is the Messiah. So also is Christ. For we were all, emphasis, 
pantes, all without exception, immersed. Ebaptisthemen, ebaptisthemen, baptized or immersed by one spirit into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, free persons, and we were all caused, caused to drink of one spirit. So this baptism is not an act of man. Let me say this. Nothing is an act of man in salvation. Salvation is of the Lord. Psalm 3.8. And the immersive baptism into Christ is an act of the Lord the Spirit. He is the Lord, the Spirit. In 2 Corinthians 3.17. The Lord is that Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. 2 Corinthians 3.17. So, let's close. No one alive can be justified in God's eyes because God is staros-eyed too. If God didn't see through the cross, then he'd say, well, you can be justified by works of righteousness. You can be justified by works of the law. You can be justified by doing right according to what liberal ideologues consider to be right or according to what right-wing ideologues consider to be right or to what present American culture considers to be right. People justify one another because they fulfill the ideals of their own ideologies, and that itself is an insanity. That's why America's freedom is short-lived. There's not much time left for it. The only way that American civil freedom will be continued in any way is if this gospel takes hold on many, many more hearts. And I'll explain why that's true in subsequent teachings if the Lord gives me time and breath. No one alive can be justified in God's eyes because God is staros-eyed too. When his Messiah, his son, died for all, then all died. 2 Corinthians 5.14. You don't know that verse as you ought to yet. If you think you know it, you don't. If I think I know it, I don't. Once I thought I knew it, I don't know it. When Jesus died, listen carefully, he was justified by the Spirit. Where do you find that? 1 Timothy 3.16. Of course. God in the flesh who was seen by angels, preached in the world, proclaimed and believed on in the world, was justified by the Spirit. If one died for all, all all have died. If one was justified as a dead person and made alive as a result, then all are given life-giving rectification in him. Through him, by him, thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ, our Lord. This is the very, this is the very kernel of truth, K-E-R-N-E-L, the very kernel of truth that I'm 
begging you to pray that I can articulate. The justification of Jesus by the Spirit, the interpretive power of the pastoral epistles has not been tapped because people are still fighting about who wrote them. Now, that Jesus was justified by the Spirit, 1 Timothy 3.16, equals he was made alive by the Spirit. The same Holy Spirit who made Jesus alive. When was he justified? When the Spirit made him alive, it was giving him life-giving justification, a justification that is the gift of his own life, God's life working in us. So, he who gave Jesus life from the dead in resurrection, that becomes a paradigm, a pattern for life-giving justification for all human beings in Romans 5.18. It doesn't say that he justified all. It says that he gave life-giving justification to all in Romans 5.18. When Jesus died, he died to sin once and for all. He died to to sin, that means away from the control of sin by being made sin. He died away from the control of sin, not because he was under that control, but because everybody else was. So when Jesus died, he died to sin once for all. When Christ died to sin, so did all. How can we who died to sin with Christ live any longer under allegiance to sin or under sin's control? Christ, who died to sin, arose to live evermore to God. So we died with him so that we should now no longer live for ourselves and to ourselves, but to him and for him who rose from the dead in 2 Corinthians 5.15. This doctrine isn't complete yet, but it's set a fuse in you, hasn't it? And it's lit. When Christ died to sin, when he who died to sin arose to live evermore to God, so did we. Even now, you were raised together with him, even now. But yet fully in bodily resurrection, it won't be realized until fully in bodily resurrection. Right now, there's a war going on. It's the change of the ages. It's a dramatic worldwide, cosmic-wide war initiated by the divine invasion of God the Son and God the Spirit. And now we are participants in that mission. That's why we come to church, to get briefed. Think of all the millions of Christians that aren't briefed. They're walking around with no briefs. As Jesus said, you'll walk around in in the nakedness of your shame. Now, that was a brilliant metaphor. That was, you, you have to be really, if, you're, if you got that, you are 
as they say today, genius, which is a stupid way of saying ingenious. Now, closing. It is wrong to attribute any saving efficacy to the ritual of water baptism. It is wrong to attribute any saving efficacy to human confession, human submission to baptism, human believing. It's importance. I think of all the people, and it's, this is the heartbreak that I feel. I think of all the people, have some of them in my mind, that quit before we got here, that fell off because they couldn't make sense of it in their own fleshly reasoning. They tried to live by fleshly wisdom. They cut off this message. They left. And that's fine. I have no qualms with anybody who leaves. Some left for the wrong reason. They couldn't wait. So they're now they're back in the comfort of human performance and human will, and all the rest of it, and they have submitted again back to the weak and bankrupt elements from which God saved them through the gospel. If you don't think that's a pastoral heartbreak, you have no idea. It is. So, God does things that heal that heartbreak beyond what you could imagine. So I ain't whining in front of you. The importance of water baptism, if there is any, now, I'm holding out an olive branch, if it's importance, if there is any, now, is it simply an act of obedience to declare one's allegiance to a new Lord? So, Father, we thank you for this opportunity. Once again, these messages are directing us toward a way of living that is not according to fleshly wisdom, but according to grace in 2 Corinthians 1.12. Make it so in our lives. And thank you for the privilege that we have to witness the miracle of the transformation of the mammon of unrighteousness into real habitations, eternal habitations. We ask this, we thank you for this in Christ's name. Amen.